O'Grady, silly and shady, longing to be a lazy lady, walk by the cupola's gables in the lakes, George and stables. In a fairy tale like the intense of the mist in the woods when across the fence the children gathering strawberries are changed by the heat into negresses. That rather flippant and experimental piece was the poetry of Edith Sitwell, chanted over the music of William Walton. It's called Facade, and we've used it as the lead-in to this section because Edith Sitwell was a member of the Bloomsbury Group, whose works we see around us. Yes, the interesting thing about the Bloomsbury Group is that unlike other circles, there was no formal membership and no specific theory or principle that they held in common. They were united more by a place... Bloomsbury is the leafy enclave around the British Museum where the Stephen family had their house and various artists and intellectuals used to gather there. The visual artists in the group included the painters Vanessa Stephen, Duncan Grant and Roger Fry. But nowadays people are more likely to be familiar with the literary and intellectual members. For example, the writers Virginia Stephen, who most of us know by her married name Virginia Woolf, and E.M. Forster, or the economist Maynard Keynes. Virginia Woolf described them in this way. We were full of experiments and reforms. We were going to do without table napkins. We were going to paint, to write. Everything was going to be different. Everything was on trial. Now this naive spirit of experimentation spilled across into romance and sex. Their relationships became famously intertwined, binding the group even closer. I like the idea of the shock value of doing without table napkins. Well, as a comment, I think it nicely characterises them. They weren't revolutionaries, they just wanted to do their own thing. For example, in 1910, Fry organised a groundbreaking exhibition of French art entitled Manet and the Post-Impressionists. It showcased Gauguin, Cézanne, Van Gogh and symbolist and fauve painters. Over 25,000 people visited the exhibition and Vanessa Bell described crowds who came to abuse and mock and demand explanations, if not apologies, from the producer. I think Fry was surprised by the sudden notoriety, but his response was fairly typical of the Bloomsbury's. He organised a follow-up exhibition in 1912, which foregrounded Matisse and the Cubists in addition to Cezanne. They were determined to be uninfluenced by society in their choices, either by condemnation or by praise. If we look at Roger Fry's still life, Jug and Eggs, we can see a conscious effort to work in the style of Cezanne. Now, I hope I won't be branded as incurably trivial, but looking at Fry's still life, the thing that strikes me is the pretty checkerboard frame. No, it's not trivial at all. The choice of frame is one of the neglected areas of art discussion, and it's one that is crucial to the presentation of the work. And frames have caused quite a bit of controversy in artistic circles at various times. Do artists choose the frames, or does someone from the gallery? Generally speaking, artists see the frame as integral to the work, so they tend to be very definite on the choice. The tradition of the golden frame, in a way, implies that the artwork is a magical window. It's a strong formal statement, a bit like a wedding dress. If we look at Fry's painting, he's made a decision to match the colours of his frame with the palette of his painting. It would have been controversial at the time, but Fry's motives would also have been simply aesthetic. The hand-painted frame was also an interesting choice in this case because it vibrated, it created an, a shimmering optical field around the painting which accorded perfectly with Fry's own philosophy about making the interaction between art and life more exciting. And it's almost like the colours are coming into the room. 
Yes, yes, and this is part of his grand scheme in a way. In 1913, Fry decided he would revitalise the decorative arts in Britain and create employment for post-impressionist artists. He set up the Amiga workshops at number 33 Fitzroy Square in Bloomsbury. His idea was to produce innovative designs with a spontaneous and playful quality. I suppose that table over there is a lovely example. Would it have been considered daringly modern at the time? Yes, I think very racy and even in avant-garde circles. Customers for this sort of thing were often wealthy members of society, such as Nancy Cunard. By the way, you'll see a remarkable portrait of her in a room a bit further on. There's also Lady Ottilyn Morell and other famous women who patronised this workshop. The workshops made furniture, pottery, textiles, clothing and carpets under the Amiga name, but problems with consistency of quality and underpricing ultimately caused the workshops to founder and they closed their doors in 1919. Of course, the First World War didn't help at all. In a way, it was a rather Bloomsbury sort of failure. Experimental, dynamic and imaginative, but ultimately lacking in rigour. Mm, I suppose rigour and bohemianism have never been natural companions, have they? 